if gender inequity is occurring in the corridors of academia and medicine, and indeed I would argue is woven into the, the fabrics of these institutions, then what does this mean for the state of health knowledge? What questions are being asked? Um, what knowledge is being constructed? What does it mean for healthcare system operations? And, and ultimately, what does it mean for patients and the care that, that patients receive? That was Cheryl Pritlove, one of our guests this week. Cheryl Pritlove is a research scientist at the Applied Health Research Center at the Lee Kaching Knowledge Institute of St. Michael's Hospital in Ontario, Canada. She's a qualitative methodologist and health equity researcher with specific interests in gender disparities. Elizabeth Metro is the founder of Women Writers in Medicine, a new organization we'll talk more about today that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of women in healthcare. She's also a senior advisor for thought leadership at Primary Care Progress and host of their podcast, Relational Rounds. I'm Audrey Provenzano, and this is Review of Systems from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on ROS Podcasts along the top to subscribe and learn more information about our guests and an archive of our previous shows. Thanks for listening. So over the last year or two, with a ballooning of the Me Too movement, more awareness and interest in addressing discrimination and harassment against women has been kind of bubbling up in healthcare. In fact, a group of physicians just launched Times Up Healthcare, and The Lancet recently published an entire issue looking at these issues entitled Advancing Women in Science, Medicine, and Global Health. So Cheryl and Elizabeth, you both have been working on these issues for much longer than this, though, you know, since this kind of recent interest. Cheryl, let's start with you. How did you know that you wanted to focus your career on studying these issues of gender disparities? First of all, thank you so much for, for having me on uh, the Review of Systems podcast. I'm a big fan. Um, so, I mean, I'm a feminist political economist by training and certainly a, a feminist in my heart and soul. And so I've long been interested in and committed to issues of gender equity and have been particularly interested in understanding the ways that broader systems and structures contribute to the production and maintenance of inequities, both uh, between men and women, but also within these groups. And so the focus of much of my work today has actually been on gender inequities in the context of health uh, and access to health care from more of a patient perspective. And it's actually been quite recently that I've extended this focus to look at gender inequities in academia and medical contexts. Um, and one of the key motivators for this shift, other than being kind of deeply troubled uh, by the extent of the gender gap in these fields, uh, was the fact that if gender inequity is occurring in the corridors of academia and medicine, and indeed I would argue is woven into the, the fabrics of these institutions, then what does this mean for the state of health knowledge? What questions are being asked? Um, what knowledge is being constructed? What does it mean for healthcare system operations? And, and ultimately, what does it mean for patients and the care that, that patients receive? And so looking at uh, women in science and medicine isn't necessarily where my research career started, but I, I do see this as a logical progression from the work that I've done and continue to do with patients. Hmm. Elizabeth, you worked for the NIH's Lead for Workforce Diversity, so you've you know thought about these issues in a number of contexts. 
Yeah, well, I will echo Cheryl's comments. I am a huge fan of Review of Systems, so it's lovely to be on. And I was nodding vigorously as Cheryl was talking, um, particularly in the space of, of like how does, does what's happening in the workforce impact what's happening for patients? Um, so, you know, I'm a rhetorician by training. I, I don't study the human body. Uh, I actually I study language. And by extension, I study story. So I listen and I, I write. Uh, my work is, is to understand both what's being said uh, and, importantly, what's not on the page, what, what stories are, are absent uh, from the dialogue. And I had been working for some time in politics and civil society through the State Department and various NGOs and USAID. So fast forward now to 2016, uh, and a report is released by the Advisory Council to the Director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, and it shook the biomedical workforce community. And what that the ACCD report, as it is referred to, um, disclosed was that there was just 1.5% of the NIH applicant pool uh, was comprised of black scientists. So that was a story that needed to be understood. Hmm. It needed to be communicated. It certainly needed to be rewritten. Um, and it's interesting, you know, in recent days, NIH has come forward with data and, and frankly, an apology uh, in regards to what's occurring in the space of gender equity, sexual harassment. And, you know, while I applaud so much of what's happening and the apologies and shedding light on on taking action, it, it hasn't been enough. Following the ACCD report, when I joined NIH and, and took um, the reins of communication in workforce diversity, looking at bias was, was sort of the first place we went. Uh, and that's the first place that we, we invested a lot of time and, and energy um, among a, a range of other interventions. But it was really around bias. And Individually, intermittently, post-intervention, there was some change in individual awareness, but it, it didn't move the needle. Um, so what has gotten me in this space, what's gotten me really interested in, and, and um, continued to, to uh, engage is that we, we've got to start thinking about interventions that do more than focus on white men and, and getting them moved forward uh, and and uh, raise awareness among the power structure. We actually need to be focusing on, on the victims, on women, on people of color um, to provide interventions um, that work now for them that uh, don't require them to sit on the sidelines and wait for other folks to to catch up. Hmm. So going off of your, your comment about bias, Cheryl, you wrote a commentary in the Lancet's February um, Lancet Women issue about implicit bias. Um, first, could you define what that means? What is an implicit bias? Yeah, of course. Uh, so the concept of implicit bias essentially suggests that uh, we think and act on the basis of externally informed, uh, but very deeply and kind of pre-reflective internalized attitudes uh, or stereotypes for which we're not consciously aware. Um, and that we can and thus do often engage in discriminatory behaviors without conscious intent. So you outlined three points about implicit bias in your comment, the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> so uh, what is good about it? Yeah. Um, so I should begin by saying that the paper itself is written not so much as a critique of implicit bias itself, um, but rather the way that institutions, or at least the way that we saw institutions taking this up and kind of touting it as the 
a solution to the right. problem of gender right. equity or inequity um, and kind of using it as a checkbox to show that sexism has been addressed within their respective institutions. So that's kind of really uh, what we're talking about when we address the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and so from this view, while we are quite critical of the ways that implicit bias uh, is being taken up, we also saw some inherent goods in this trend, um, which included the fact that implicit bias helps to solidify that a problem exists hmm. uh, and that something can and should be done about it. Um, another good that we identified is that implicit bias testing can indeed raise an individual's awareness, and there's evidence to support this, uh, um, of their involvement in discriminatory beliefs or actions. Uh, and then implicit bias training uh, can provide provide people with tools to confront and begin to resolve these biases. And as I mentioned, there is some evidence uh, to support positive individual-level change that comes from um, this training. So, uh, good. And then lastly, um, with its increased popularity in academia as well as in society broadly, um, we thought that implicit bias helps to enrich the public consciousness and discourse, as well as debate on uh, gender inequity. And so all of these are kind of crucially important building blocks for change, especially from a, a feminist political economist perspective. And, and what about the bad? I mean, you mentioned a little bit, you know, that some of these trainings aimed at implicit bias can help people be more aware of their bias and therefore counteract it. But you also write that sometimes the trainings can reinforce it. So what can be done there? I, I mean, we do, you know, we acknowledge that there's some successes in changing individual-level beliefs and behaviors. Um, and as I mentioned, this has been well-documented in the research. And so we certainly don't want to minimize that. However, what we do critique and situate as bad is that it very narrowly focuses on individual agency. So, you know, the actions and inactions of, of people. And this largely overlooks the structures in which these individuals operate and through which their behaviors are governed. So, you know, the, the rules, the regulations, written and unwritten, um, policies, cultural norms, all of these types of things that govern institutions and individuals within them, those are kind of absent from the discussion. So in the paper, we argue that by focusing so narrowly on individuals that implicit bias overlooks um, the very masculinized nature of academia and the ways that this differently sets people up for success um, by promoting and rewarding certain kinds of traits their career styles, work preferences, um, or practices, so kind of more competitive, hierarchical approaches. Um, and the other layer to this is that even when women do excel within these masculinized environments, they're often criticized because such mm -hmm. behaviors clash with broader social expectations of feminine comportment, which, you know, demand that we kind of be cooperative and collaborative and egalitarian. And nice. Um, and <laughs> exactly. And nice and caring. That's the big one. Um, and so in short, the, the bad is that a focus on implicit bias and individuals provides this very limited view of what we saw as much bigger structural problems. And that by focusing so narrowly on individual change, 
um, while leaving these broader systems essentially unchecked, um, we're setting people up for failure because the ways that we're asking them to act uh, and behave in very kind of egalitarian and cooperative and inclusive ways are in direct conflict with the reward systems of the institutions themselves. Hmm. So, so what can institutions do? We do argue toward the end of the bad that, um, you know, some forms of training uh, can actually reinforce the problem. And this certainly depends on the form the training takes. So, you know, there's some research to suggest that if it's overtly prescriptive or if it has tones of blame or if attendance uh, in, in these training sessions is mandatory or coerced, um, that there's some evidence of backlash and pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the other perspective, there's also some data to suggest that if we over-naturalize implicit bias, so, you know, messages like this is something uh, everybody has or it's not your fault or, you know, these types of messages, um, that that can also be problematic insofar as people are less willing um, to confront the problems. And so some research has shown that making programs voluntary increases success, but in keeping with kind of the the tone of the article and and my theoretical orientations around the importance of addressing bigger structural issues, I would actually argue that we need to address the culture that invites this type of backlash Hmm. um, to changing oneself in more equitable ways either before or in tandem with individual intervention. That cultural change, though, is so, so monumentally difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's a little bit where Elizabeth's new organization comes in. Elizabeth, tell me about, you know, what you were thinking over the last couple of years, you know, obviously in the context of your experience at the NH and then this kind of, movement that's come about in the last couple of years that kind of percolated mm-hmm. and helped you come up with this idea of your new organization. What is Women Writers in Medicine's mission? Kind of playing off of some of what Cheryl has talked about in terms of the the individual and institutional um, challenges, barriers to women's advancement in, in medicine, biomedical research. You know, when you look at the data, um, Right now, in in high-impact journals, the Harvard Business Review has reported that that less than 10% of of senior authors are women. Less than 7% of of those those high-impact journals um, have editors who are women. Um, Even Nature reported recently that um, when it comes to biomedical research awards across nearly 700 different prizes, 15% of, of recipients are, are women. And by the way, they receive about 65 cents on the dollar to what men receive. So, you know, there are so many systemic um, and, and structural barriers to advancement for women. I applaud all of the efforts to focus on on implicit bias and, and do some real change making at the individual level. Uh, we also have to marry that individual work with with what's happening at the institution at institutional level um, when Cheryl was talking I was reminded of a, of a quote by Martin Luther King in his book um, 
why we can't wait. And he says that, you know, a social movement that only moves people is merely a revolt, a movement that changes people and institutions is a revolution. Mm-hmm. And if we are going to actually really change the, the makeup of research, biomedical research, medicine, and in doing so change the way we also care for and provide um, services to, to a very diverse population, then we've got to change both the people and the institutions. Hmm. So what what kind of writing do you focus on? You know, in certainly in academic institutions, it feels like sometimes the only kind of writing that gets any purchase or is seen uh, as um, career advancing as uh, peer-reviewed publications. And um, how, how can an outside organization help women succeed more in kind of a really convoluted and complicated process? like peer-reviewed publication? Mm-hmm. So to answer that question in two parts, what kind of writing do we do? We do it all. So whether that's peer-reviewed journals and or, or grants or more the essays and, and um you know, editorial content, you know, we'll we'll tackle a variety of different media. Um you're right. I, I right now the the current landscape is that peer-reviewed academic journals just simply get more um, more citations they get that it's part of published parish is part of the um, the career advancement process for so many clinicians and biomedical researchers I'd like to see that change and I think it's mm-hmm. a, that's an important part of, of changing the system I, I don't think that expertise is dictated by citations or publication um, and I think that's an important long-term goal uh, right now you know it's important to, to uh, amplify women's voices so that they can get the research and the prestige that they need and then and then we'll shake up the system hmm. so you you mentioned that you know, you're working with some organizations as well. How do you, Mm -hmm. you know, you work with some individuals. How do you work with institutions to um, kind of, as Cheryl had said, address some of these systemic barriers that um, Mm -hmm. are holding women back? Twofold, and I would love to highlight the work that we're doing right now with the Robert Graham Center, which is the research wing of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Um, And we have partnered with them to really understand the extent to which um, publication has stymied uh, pay and promotion for women in the medical space. So I I want to applaud Andrew Bazemore, the the, um, head of the Robert Graham Center for being so bold and self-disclosing in jumping into a project that is is all about being transparent about their own publications. Hmm. What percentage of women have been published um, in their roughly thirty or so publications annually that they that they put out? Um, so we're partnering with them to understand one the the rate of which women are are published in their own institution uh, or in, in their, um, the Robert Graham center, um, their pay, their promotion, the, um, research funding that they are able to, to subsequently acquire from publication. So we're working with them in, on that project. That's also engaged a number of other larger institutions across the country who are excited to do internal audits. And I think in those internal audits, when you ask the question, how do we engage institutions? Well, they have to be willing to, to take a really hard, honest look at their data. Hmm. Um, and so by engaging other 
other institutions to do internal audits um, to look at at their pay promotion and publication of women, it's a wonderful first step um, to then be able to come back together and with more aggregate data from across the country and say, all right, now what do we do with this? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just publication. I mean, you, you focus on writing um, in your organization, but um, Julie Silver, this uh, wonderful physiatrist, mm-hmm. has published paper after paper after paper looking at professional organizations' prizes and yes. how disproportionately, even in pediatrics, for example, a field which um, has a kind of dramatic proportion of most uh, physicians being women, um, the men uh, somehow mm-hmm. <laughs> end up still getting the majority of the awards. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, helping organizations think critically about themselves and how they uh, play out in gender dynamics is a really interesting approach. Yeah, it's really it's interesting. You know, we have when you look at academic medical centers, what one in five um, tenured faculty are women, mm-hmm. and yet women are um, in the majority in both entering medical school and graduating. Mm-hmm. So it, we don't have a pipeline issue. Mm-hmm. We have we have a leaky pipeline um, right, right. At, at some point. So so I think how do we capture? Um, the women sustain them, mentor them, get them published, get them where they need to go, um, because it certainly isn't a pipeline issue. We have a lot of really talented women who are doing the work, um, and in many cases are the majority of the workforce, um, and yet they're not being provided with the opportunities, um, awards, publications to move forward in their careers. And just to jump I think the the work that you're doing uh, with the Robert Graham Center is so important because that data will essentially help to put accountability measures in place, right, Mm -hmm. and hold institutions accountable. And I think that's really important. You know, there's been research in the past that looked broadly at women's publication, but it was very third party. And a lot of assumptions were made uh, about gender based on first names alone, Um, and so to be able to work with an institution like the Graham Center to create standard methods that other institutions can adopt and do internal audits of their own and then merge that data writ large to say, okay, let's really look at the problem and also engage the institutions as stakeholders to move the problem into a solution, right? Hmm. Yeah, I think I think in medicine and healthcare we're we're really lucky. Generally, we work with people of good faith who I think would really like to improve this this problem. So I guess I have two prong question here. You know, how can men who are listening be allies for women to help change some of these statistics? And then also, as Cheryl, you wrote a lot about in your article, how can we be intersectional? You know, in particular, focusing on amplifying the voices of minority women who, you know, I think are, are oftentimes the most kind of marginalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's such a great question, Audrey, and I'm so happy that you brought it up because I think these conversations, especially with respect to the conversation about uh, men allies first, um, I think a lot of these conversations, and understandably so, often dissolve into an us versus them mm-hmm. tone. Right. Um, and I think that this is something I'm, I'm guilty of myself, uh, but don't actually see it as being productive. And, and I actually think in many cases it's probably not fair. Um, and in fact, I think in some instances it can actually be counterproductive. So I believe that men have a critical role to play in diversity and inclusion efforts, um, especially initiatives that eliminate gender bias. Um, 
And while within this particular gender uh, dichotomy, sorry, women are certainly more disadvantaged by the system, we really all have something to gain from more inclusive workplace environments. And I think that if we work from this understanding rather than looking at who is privileged and who is marginalized, then we have the greatest chance of partnering together and really soldiering forward uh, to produce meaningful and lasting change. Uh, that being said, I, I do think that these partnerships need to be approached with sensitivity. Um, after, our, after all, there are very real power relations between men and women in academia and certainly in broader society. And I think that these need to be recognized and fostered if we're going to enhance the likelihood of successful partnerships. Um, and I think first and foremost, um, it's important for men to listen uh, to women and, and kind of follow their lead. Uh, in terms of being kind of a good partner and ally, uh, given that it's women who have this experience of marginalization. Uh, I actually don't think that we need, some people say, you know, that we need men allies to elevate or champion us. And I don't know that this is what we need men for. And I think that this actually kind of reinstates some existing power dynamics. Um, but what I do think is that we need them to walk with us and fight together for a better system that we all stand to benefit from and, and recognizing that as kind of our shared goal. Um, I would also tell men allies to get comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> this movement is about challenging unearned privileges. And this is something that can be very difficult to confront or, or be yeah. confronted with. Um, but I think that it's absolutely necessary if we want to start changing um, the way that we think and work together to uh, make uh, real and lasting change in this area. So uh, as hard as it is and, you know, never easy for anybody to be confronted with discomfort, but, yeah, getting comfortable with the idea of, of feeling uncomfortable. Um, and then in terms of intersectionality and you know, amplifying the voices of, of women who, you know, have multiple axes of oppression and, and, as you mentioned, Audrey, experienced kind of some of the worst marginalization in these cases, I think that those voices are out there and they're looking to be heard and they are being heard. Um, but I think we can do a better job at that. And outlets like this podcast and other forums that, challenge and problematize status quo thinking, as well as the work that uh, Elizabeth does with um, women writers in medicine, I think that these types of spaces can play a very crucial role in, in amplifying these voices. Hmm. Elizabeth, what, what do you think about, about these two questions? Oh my goodness, so much. Um, so not only can we do a better job of engaging uh, my minorities, um, people of color, but we have to because our population is changing. And and I, I think one of the things that's absent from this conversation, but a whole podcast uh, on its own, is, is certainly engaging minority women 
also non-binary, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so gender is, is, is changing and, and, and how we, we reflect gender, gender and, um, and think about our own, um, gender identity is changing. And in order for us to really treat a, a changing population, we have to be respectful of that, um, dynamic as well. So, so certainly worth, worth mentioning to your question about engaging men. I have a great story. <laughs> so I was speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival, uh, last year and, the host of the panel, uh, Dr. John Torres, the chief medical correspondent from NBC, made a comment. I was the only woman on stage. He made a comment to one of the women in the audience, and it was off color. And in the context of the the space, we laughed. It was fine. And I stewed on it. Uh, it was related to her looks. And um, I stewed on it for some time. And then naturally, this is why you can't hang out with a writer because we will write this in, in some sort of, <laughs> of article. But um, I, I felt really compelled to write this article. I, I felt slighted and I didn't say anything at the time. And so I actually called Dr. Torres and I said, Dr. Torres, you know, you made this comment on this panel and it really bothered me. It offended me, um, actually. And, and you, were, you were commenting on this woman's looks and you kind of underscored this issue of sexism that's going on in, in, in healthcare. Um, and he said, I, I don't remember saying that, that, that thing at all. And we had the conversation over the phone that we should have had in Aspen, hmm. right? We should have, we should have just had a timeout and said, okay, something just happened that I'm feeling a lot of feelings. That was really uncomfortable. Can we talk about the thing that was just said? So I think when we, t- when we think about engaging men and to Dr. Torres's credit, I mean, he hung on the phone and he was really interested, humble and engaged in the dialogue. Um, his own daughter is in medical school. Hmm. So, so I think, you know, as we engage, uh, different kinds of stakeholders, men, we, we need to be candid and honest about those, um, those moments where we feel slighted, where we feel how we haven't been heard. The other day I was on a call and a, a female colleague of mine, a, a doctor was interrupted 15 times in 30 minutes yeah. and, and which is no surprise. None of your listeners are going to be shocked by that, nope. but it, it got to the point where I was just like, you know what, actually, there's a weird dynamic happening on the call. Can we just acknowledge it for a second and either address it or, you know, reschedule because we can either, we're going to leave this call with a solution and with a fractured team. So, so I think there are ways that we can engage men, we can bring them into the dialogue, we can stop calling them out and start calling them in, uh, because they have to be part of the dialogue for, for moving gender equity forward. Um, right now, they happen to be 85% of, of our leadership, so they're a majority, uh, they're our bl- uh, the, a majority voting block, we, <laughs> we need to be engaging them. Um, and we also need to be engaging them, um, and, and I guess, Cheryl, I would certainly wouldn't push back, but I'm, I would love a further conversation about that role of mentors versus sponsors or both. Right. So, so often women are told, get your, you know, get mentors and, and, you know, there's so much talk in healthcare in particular, and certainly in research about having mentors. If mentors aren't enough, we need sponsors. We need people that are willing to sit at the table and not just on this, the sidebar, 
mentor um, people who are coming through the ranks, but then also speak on behalf of them and advocate for them um, in rooms where rooms of power particularly at the National Institutes of Health, there were so many conversations about, um, the, you know, the pipeline. There, there weren't enough applicants. So, you know, they couldn't choose a, an African-American applicant uh, because there weren't enough. Well, there were, <laughs> just like there were enough women applicants. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's about advocating for young, early careerists, people coming up through the ranks to make sure that they have a voice and a place at the table and they're not dismissed. Um, for a whole variety of um, systems and structural challenges that are outside of their control. I mm-hmm. think that, that that marriage of mentorship and sponsorship is really, really critical. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last thing I would say for, for men who are in positions of, of some influence who want to take a first step, they should get in touch with me. Um, we are, this work with the, the Robert Graham Center is continuing to build, not just here in the U.S., but in Canada, and we're engaging some really amazing partners. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, to take a look at um, the role of, of women's publication and pay and promotion, and we're always looking for more partners in that, and there's something to be said for taking the first step to be transparent and, and really acknowledge the problem before we can take a stab at finding solutions. Yeah, so it sounds like organizations should be in touch to get involved. And then, and what about individuals? Who, you know, who's your indi- desired audience for women writers in medicine, and how um, how do they get involved with you? Yeah, reach out. Um, we are working with a, a lot of amazing women. We're doing a couple of things, um, certainly writing for them, but we're also building a really amazing community of women across the country who are involved in in research um, who are trying to do interventions in their own clinics and then and publish broader than that um, so do do reach out if you have something to say and I know you do <laughs> um, and and research that you're really excited about getting promoted published and funded wonderful thank you both so much what this has been such a pleasure, Audrey. Thank you. And thank you for your work as a, as a woman and doing amazing work to amplify voices. Thank you. You've been listening to Review Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, and click on ROS Podcast along the top to find more information about our show, links to subscribe, and an archive of our old shows. You can find links to more information about our guests, Dr. Pritlov and Elizabeth Metro, and links to Dr. Pritlov's article and the website for women writers in medicine. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show. You can share us on social media with your friends and colleagues. You can find our guest Cheryl on Twitter. Cheryl, what's your handle? Uh, it's at Cheryl Pitlove. And Elizabeth. At Med Women Writers and at Elizabeth underscore PCP. Great. And you can find me at Audrey MDMPH. Tweet us feedback and suggestions or email me at contact at ROSPod.org. Thanks for listening.